Here's an experiment for you. Take passionate experts in human resource technology. Invite cross-industry experts from inside and outside HR. Mix in what's happening in people analytics today. Give them the technology to connect. Hit record. Pour their discussions into a beaker. Mix thoroughly. And voila, you get the HR Data Labs podcast, where we explore the impact of data and analytics to your business. We may get passionate and even irreverent, but count on each episode challenging and enhancing your understanding of the way people data can be used to solve real-world problems. Now, here's your host, David Turetsky. Hello, and welcome to the HR Data Labs podcast. I am your host, David Turetsky. Like always, we're joined by our friend and colleague, Dwight Brown from Salary.com. Hey, Dwight, how are you? Hey, David, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. But I'm phenomenal today because, as we say, we like to find the best and the brightest inside and outside the world of HR to bring you what's happening in HR data analytics and technology. We have my dear friend, long-term dear friend, Dermot O'Brien, who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyways. Dermot, hello. How are you? Great, David. How are you doing? Good to see you, Dwight, as well. Good to see you. Thanks for being here with us today. Happy to be. So for those of you who do not know Dermot, I don't know what rock you've been hiding under, but Dermot is a rock star in the HR world. He has so many years of experience. It's the reason why we have gray hairs and some of us don't have many hairs at all anymore. But Dermot is one of those people who has lived the global HR life working around the world. Dermot, why don't you give a little bit of your background beyond that, beyond the bland one? Sure. And just for people listening, David and I have known each other several decades. Um, <laughs> and it's been great. Worked in different organizations together. And it was, it was so nice in the last one to, to, to reconnect. A great guy, a great character, and totally committed, really, over, the, over your career, David, to, this, to the space that is HR. My accent is mainly gone now, but I grew up in Dublin, Ireland, and I moved to the States, did university, financial services, 25 years in HR. Yep. Uh, I was in Hong Kong. I was in Japan, living by five years in total. Came back to the States and uh, really have lived here ever since. I've been fortunate. I've been in multiple CHRO roles yep. at TIA for nine years, two different CEOs at ADP, where I was head of HR. But then we had a big activist investor. Maybe we get to talk about that a little bit later. And a new role was created, a chief transformation officer role. Right which I took over reporting to the CEO to really help the company deliver on some big promises it made in response to beating this big activist investor in terms of the proxy battle, et cetera. So really HR, my, I tripped into it. I've schooled in finance, but I tripped into HR, loved it. And then I retired from ADP about a year ago. And since then, you've been doing a lot of work as an advisor, right? Helping organizations grow and understand how to really be able to execute. Yeah, I, you know, I really wanted to take 18 months at least off. I was calling it a timeout. Is it really retirement? You know, because we don't know. Nobody knows about anything till they really right. kind of try it. So I wanted to give myself an escape hatch just in case. And But even during that time, prior to leaving ADP, I was approached by Semper Virens. It's a VC startup for, for HR kind of organizations. And uh, I did a while at ADP. Thought it'd be good for ADP to get an insight into the early tech Right. You know, in, into this space. And then I stayed on and then I've become an advisor also then. So I'm on an executive advisory board with them. And then I've joined a bunch of their investment companies to advise. So it's all in the VC space. Very new for me. I love new things and I like to learn and I like to contribute. So, you know, they're trying to understand how their products and apps and, 
and platforms work in the HR space, and they're trying to learn how to scale. And I think that's what I can help you know bring to the table for them. Absolutely. And and again, you have the global perspective, which is incredibly unique. Not only have you dealt with HR technology and HR people issues, but you've also seen it in lots of different cultures and lots of different industries. And people can learn a lot from listening to Dermot, not only talk, but also what he is working on. If you can follow him on LinkedIn, please do, because he's a brilliant. And that's a thank you for what you had said before about me. So, <laughs> thank you, David. But one fun thing you may not know about Dermot O'Brien is... You know, I don't know if it's a fun thing, because a lot of people who know me, I'm very open. I play music, you know, you know, guitar, piano, sing a little. No surprise for an Irishman. But one thing you may not know is... To my mother's side, I, the eldest boy, they've all passed on. Now there's four of them. There's one oh. remaining. The baby of the family is alive, but four passed on. But the eldest was a priest. And he went to Miami when he was 18, Father Brian Walsh. And he went on to really lead the largest Western child diaspora, mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in the history of the world. And basically it was 14,000 Cuban children were taken out of Cuba around the time when the Castros uh, took over, the parents were so concerned about these children. And so it's an incredible organization. It ultimately became known as Project Peter Pan, Pedro Pan. Wow. It's pretty neat. It's something a lot of people don't know. So I actually have a very nice connection, you know, into the sort of, into Cuba and the Cuban story and stay in touch with a lot of people, you know, down in Miami. When he passed away, they had motorcycle cops on all the exits on highway 95 for this irish priest and it was so amazing to see his impact on the world and particularly for these very vulnerable you know children Children. that he had placed all around the country with the intentions which most were reunited with their with their families years later that's wonderful that is really great that's incredible well, I can't beat that from a thing that we've learned about someone. I, I can't think of anyone that, that's that actually held a candle to that one, Dwight. Hey, yeah, it's not, it's not me. I'm just I'm just in the sunlight of my uncle, uh, Monsignor Brian Walsh. He was, a, he was an amazing man. <laughs> and it, it, the, awesome. it looks good on you. Because if you know Dermot, <laughs> um, you know he's a good soul as well. So he's got good roots. Thanks, David. So the topic for today that we're going to touch on also is a really good topic talking about how we do good things inside of organizations when it comes to building DEI into a corporate framework and being able to really utilize DEI as a corporate strategy. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're really excited to get started. So, Dermot, our first question is, why is it actually important to have a diverse team and actually a good diverse talent pool? Why is that so important? And why is it important to you? Yeah, I think, I think we've all, anyone who listen, is listening has probably, you know, understands now that it is, it is super important. And again, it, beyond societal issues of fairness and equity, and those have become even more obvious to people, I think, sure. especially in the, over the last few years. But it's, it's it, you know, we've all seen it. The research has been done with different people around a problem or an issue. You get better outcomes. And so, you know, I think of DEI not, we can call it a corporate, you know, effort, but it's really a business strategy. And you, I think a lot of people get it, 
then there's some people who really get it. And I feel like I'm in the group that really gets it because I've seen time and time again how you know there's better performance, better results that you get the more diverse, you know, the, the, the people around the problem are. If you, if you have a lot of the same people, it's pretty obvious when you do it the other way. When it's a lot of the same people trying to solve a hard challenge, you can, you, we see it time and time again, you don't get too far. What we've talked a lot to companies about from the DEI perspective is that it has to start from the top. That leadership really needs to buy into, as you say, this being part of business strategy, not just being an effort that gets kicked off by HR, but you yeah. know might have some support. It really needs to be part of an overall business strategy. Yeah, totally agree. And because at the end of the day, the people who have the levers. You know, that's what it is. It's, it's not, oh, you know, they don't buy in, but they have the levers of power to move and prioritize and, you know, kind of point to scarce, you know, resources and deploy them. That's why that is so important. It's not just, you know, about, you know, why the senior people, it's why the senior people, because they have the levers to control it. It's interesting. You asked me, you know, what it means to me and people listening might go, hey, this is, this is a guy, he's 56. He's, you know, a white guy. You know, why is he, he's so passionate? I have been my whole career, sure. you know, around, around diversity, around inclusion, you know, in particular. And, and a lot of it started actually before my whole awareness grew on the performance side of things in terms of better solutions really was, was, a, was really more of a cultural issue. I remember going to see Man United, my struggling, you know, prep football team. Football team yeah. And <laughs> my dad, my dad took me over to, uh, Old Trafford, my brother came, he's a Liverpool fan, still is. Uh -oh. But we went there and then we looked just like the young English, you know, kids back then. And, and, but once we opened our mouths and they heard the accents, it was amazing the difference. And it wasn't a good difference. Mm -mm. And that's just the way things were. And, and mm -hmm. I learned early on what being treated like a second class citizen feels like. Oh, sure. You don't actually, you don't actually take on that feeling you actually know people are trying to make you feel that way you still feel very proud and you know happy to be who you are where you come from but you know that someone is looking at you and and judging you as as, as if you're lesser and it's just the way it was so i was very young when i kind of had that feeling and and i think that stayed with me through my hr career and that's why again i always say even someone with my background can actually say, yeah, I actually know what that feels like. And it's funny how the world then, you know, as time goes by and I've lived around the world, I've had my wife here in the States, but she's from the Philippines. She was mm -hmm. 10 when she came here. Sure. I was 18, you know, so again, I think it's probably just fairly typical for how I evolved over time. You know, my young, my daughter's now 28. When she was in eighth grade or something, she, you know, and I just, she was my daughter. That's the way I looked at her. And she came home one day and said, dad, you know, we've got five children, you know, five kids of color in my class. And I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah, me, you know, and then she went on to list the others. And I never thought of her that way, but right. it's been good for me also, not just my work, but my family, you know, in terms of being around these issues. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there's always been a case, whether it's bullying or whether it's participation in sports, there's always been cases where as young, young people, not even as young adults, but as young people, we were, we were treated different. We were separated out. And those people who take on that feeling and then utilize that as a, as a method for trying to understand how other people live and standing in their shoes, then they understand what it feels like. And hopefully, 
turn that into something positive. And I congratulate you for doing that. And because you actually have the pulpit of being able to speak on this topic with authority, hopefully people listen, especially again, given your position of leadership, so that they understand they really do need to step inside those other people's shoes to understand what the impact of not doing these things, not building into business strategy means to being able to actually effectively lead a company and and actually design better business strategy, right? Really well said. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking subscribe. This podcast is made possible by salary.com. Now back to the show. The next question really is around how do we do this and what strategies can be employed to actually making meaningful change? Yeah, well, look, getting back to your point about ownership at the top, I think this is where CHRO, you know, really needs to be hands in. And I can give you the example when, you know, I started at ADP and we were really making this a focus and, and ADP for many years worked in a very vertical you know, PL line and big part of what I was trying to help with Carlos Rodriguez, the CEO, was really to continue to have that strength, but actually make it more horizontal. And so a lot of the ways you do that is is really around people and culture and engagement. And so what I ended up doing was was the the ADP senior leadership team on the HR side had a process every month where they would look at 60,000 people. They'd look at the top 600 leaders, because again, they're the people with the power to make decisions, to make changes around the, the people makeup. So we, we would sit down and have these monthly meetings and you know, again, they would have these monthly meetings, but then not be happy maybe with, you know, who's in what role, et cetera. And so what, what I ended up doing is start saying, like, let's get very data-driven mm-hmm. around these conversations. We know we're really trying to change in the top 600 what more women in global leadership roles. We wanted more diversity in the U.S. roles, in terms, particularly African-American. We had pretty good, you know, sort of Hispanic representation right. at ADP and leadership. But, you know, there were certain areas where we really wanted to focus on and just to be more representative. And again, with the intention to get the business results you know, we believed would come from, from doing that very intentionally. So, so we started looking at jobs and we might say, okay, we have this, we have this you know, executive leadership role over here. And then we really started looking at, okay, who's the leader for that? So what's, what's their background? Right. How many positions at this level have they filled in the last two years? What is their background? Who are the candidates for the current job? What are their backgrounds? And it doesn't take long to start to realize that, that Johnny's hiring a lot like himself, right? for example. And so we would be able to then have really great information that basically just said, you know, if we had to, which we did, stop the presses. Right. You know, you've had these opportunities, mm-hmm. four opportunities. You're a white male leader. You've had these four opportunities over the last two years. You've hired white male leaders. You've got a great opportunity now. And look at your candidate slate, the white male leaders. Now, I've probably oversimplified this a little sure. bit, but it was it was just the rigor of getting in like that and then actually having the, I don't think you need much, but the guts to stop the presses and probably piss off a hiring leader because, you know, you're, you're saying, no, we can't proceed. It's not a healthy, you know, pipeline. Now that's one part of it. The other part of it is the HR talent acquisition team, whether it's sourcing internal people, sourcing external people. I have found that it's not that there's a lot of biased people out there. I right. think a lot, my deep, 
hands-in research and looking at problems in multiple companies is a lot of the problems actually in the talent acquisition area where mm. it's just the sourcing of the quality talent that's diverse that that you need and so nobody wants to admit it at first and everyone's like saying hey no we do you know but then when you really get in there you realize nah it's not as strong as it needs to be is are do you typically find that that comes from a lack of knowledge of how to even start to source these things or or what do you think on that yeah because i think we're all creatures of habit and we've all learned what we've learned and so, you know, you start to say, okay, well, let me look at the diversity of my talent acquisition team. You know, when I, when I, we had built, ADP had built, there was six or seven person executive recruiting team. There wasn't one person of color on it. I mean, how would they, you know, unless they kind of broke out of their, you know, traditional ways, how would they know where to go? Right. 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 So, so, so part of this is, HR has to put a big mirror up to itself, make sure that it is leading by example. And that's in everything that HR does has to be, you know, you know, has to be diverse. And 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 one of the things, for example, I've seen, I've met a lot of chief diversity officers over the years. And one thing that I sometimes find lacking is that if you really want to like a chief inclusion officer, look at their usually the teams are small. Like even when, you know, when we brought people into the role at ADP, we'd say, hey, you've got 60,000, you've got a team right. of 60,000 strong because that's your job is to leverage everybody. Right. But a lot of them, for example, you know, they would be very much focused on maybe, maybe they're an African-American female and they're very, and they're very focused on African-Americans. Well, that's not inclusion. So my challenge, which sometimes I think annoyed some people was, no, no, you need to mean something to everyone. That's what inclusion means. We may double down and have yeah. a need to have greater African-American females in our executive roles, but you've got to mean something to everyone. And so I found even in that seat, there's a lot of advocacy going on, but sometimes for a small part of the population. And by the way, what that does is a lot of people are watching and it turns them off and it's yeah. not helping the cause. So I know for people who probably listen to this, they may get a little annoyed at what I'm stating, but everything you do, you will need people. So for example, what's the diversity of the diversity team? Right. Is there a white male over 40, maybe who's gay, you know, or right. is it all women? And so you have to challenge yourself and you have to be open to be challenged to make sure that everywhere in HR, you've got the backgrounds, the experience that can come together to put together better solutions to kind of get better results at the end of the day. Dermot, I'm, I'm remembering when I worked at ADP, there was so many people who were basically sourced out of local areas. So obviously there's Roseland, New Jersey, suburb of New York City. There's yeah. Alpharetta, which is a suburb of Atlanta. Even Augusta had a, an extremely large population. And, you know, there are those, and, and, you know, obviously there's California, there's Colorado, there's lots of different places where ADP has, has people, Arizona, even Florida now. So it seems like that organization did a good job at least putting themselves in centers where they could find diverse talent because yeah. they're, they're basically going all over the U.S., and the areas where they are, whether it's Alpharetta, whether it's Augusta, whether it's Florida, there are places where they can find diverse talent because the population who lives there are, by their very nature, very diverse. 
culturally, you know, very disparate and wonderful with lots of different types of people that you can find. And as you're saying, it's not just about ethnicity. It's not just about race. It's also about background or it's about, and some people about age. It's also about LGBTQ yeah. plus status. So, you know, yeah. that organization did a good job from location perspective. And I, I think one of the other things I wanted to ask you about this is, is that looking at non-traditional sources of hiring, you know, we always talk about, you know, do you go after the Ivy League for the elite people when it comes to the financial services world? And we've seen the rise of historically black colleges and universities when it comes to trying to find really good people, especially in those areas, in those states where you may not have been able to find diverse talent in the past. So have you seen a rise in kind of those sources and those educational centers where we've been able to find really good people? For sure. And, and again, like anything, you need to nurture those relationships. Part of that nurturing, another way of saying is you need to build trust, mm -hmm. right, over time sure. and deliver on the promises that you make. Right. So yes, I think there's there's a lot being done. But again, I see posts, you know, I'm retired now. So I see posts on LinkedIn and people are now, you know, some very prominent CHROs talking about the pledges that were made, mm -hmm. you know, one, two years ago, and people not delivering on them. And it it, it's very frustrating when you know, just because, again, I'm an operator, a hands-on sort of person, that you know you can make a difference. So, you know, during my five, six years as the, as, the, as the head of HR there at ADP, you know, before moving into the transformation role, it was over 50% increase in the executive women representation. Right. It was over 40% African-Americans in the U.S. So that's global women you know, U.S. for African-Americans. And, you know, those are big percentages. Yeah. And by the way, they've, they've increased even, obviously, Srini Kutam's running HR. Yeah. They're doing an amazing job with the team. Yeah. And it's increased even more. So, the, so the, they, are, they are made in tremendous steps. Yeah. Some of them, by the way, it was in the rigor of the process. I just told you, yeah. you stay on that week in, week out. And then something I always say to people is, you know, that we all go to training, you know, the unconscious bias and you know, for me, the, the one area where I think a lot of people don't take advantage of, so you can have all these programs, and they're important, by the way, you need to have a lot of things around a system, especially a cultural system sure. of inclusion, you know, to make sure it happens, you know, to some degree of, of, of progress. But the other thing is, it's like a, you know, sort of judo move is to me is, wait a second, instead of fighting the bias, right. embrace it. Yep. So one of the things I've learned is that the reality is we're all biased because we all have our limited upbringing. This is the world, whatever it is, wherever sure. it is, whoever you are, we're all limited by definition. And that mm -hmm. is bias. Mm -hmm. And then there's biases in there. Like we, I mentioned my 17-year-old cockapoo here in the preamble before we got on. And, you know, her hearing isn't good anymore, but for years she'd hear something and she'd put her paw up, you know, like she's pointing towards a bird. I'm not a hunter. I never took her hunting, but she, <laughs> it's ingrained in her DNA. Right. It right. is just centuries of, you know, kind of ingrained behavior right. passed down then to her, right? So the same thing with us. So, so instead of fighting it, because think about the old caveman, cavewomen sure. days, anyone looks different than you, they're probably yeah. from another tribe and they're dangerous and they're going to kill you. So right. that is a core thing that I think we really need to talk about more and then embrace it. So for example, one of the greatest, fastest strategies for DEI that I've ever put in place, you did it at TI, we did it at ADP, is take diverse people and put them in seats of power. Right. Just do it. Sure. And then guess what happens? 
you put a, a senior, you know, which we did at ADP, put a senior African-American female in, a, in an executive leadership, yep. like the top executive level. Guess what happens? More African-Americans are showing up on her team. Right. It's just, she's, she had the relationship, she had the network, she had the, she made the commitment, right, to, to, right. to build out her team. And so therefore, then now they get, we get to see them in action a bit more than we did before. And now we can take them and put them over here into this business unit. So, you know, put diverse people in these hiring big senior right. positions. And, and, and I say this really nicely, play to the bias. Because mm -hmm. the bias is there yeah. rather than sort of fight it and either pretend it doesn't exist and it's soft. And of course, nobody wants to be, you know, viewed a certain way, but right. it, we are who we are. Right. And, and the more mm -hmm. we can be honest with ourselves, that's inclusion to me. A lot of awareness that goes into that. Yeah. But, but one of the things I was going to say about that, Dwight, in terms of awareness is measurement, right? If you measure mm -hmm. the progress you're making, and uh, as you said before, Dermot, a lot of CHROs pledged a lot of things, but they didn't exactly follow up on those pledges with the measurement and the external awareness. They didn't put it in their 10Ks. They didn't talk about it externally. Yeah. Now, with Regulation SK, as well as other regulations coming from the SEC, we might actually see that much more so now, where all of these things are now going to turn outwardly facing. So your customers will understand your makeup. They'll understand the progress you're making or the lack thereof. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I'm a huge, always have been days since you and I first met. I love defining success because a lot of times people actually don't do a right. good job at defining success, whatever, the, whatever they're trying to solve for. In this case, define success, measure it, and then just be honest with yourself. We're either failing you know, we're neutral or we're making great exactly. progress. It's very straightforward. We, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at ADP, I can't say we anymore, but they, <laughs> I'm still saying we, they, um, we built it into the executive team plan. Sure. So, you know, the CEO and his team, you know, we built in, you know, a certain portion of their incentive. And it, it, it wasn't that, oh, money was the reason they're doing it. It was to keep it front and center right. and reward the right behavior Absolutely. and the right actions and results that we wanted. And so, you know, if we did, if we did great, people got rewarded for it and it kind of encouraged that, you know, right behavior. And if we didn't, then, you know, you get dinged for it. And again, some of those things, I always say, you have to put in when you're doing a big change or a, you're trying to align an organization and you want it to go somewhere different. It's like digging a river and changing its current. Absolutely. Culture is like that. It's like that. So if you, if you've ever got a culture current, and now you want it to go in a different way or direction. You need to get the diggers out, redirect the river, put this what I call false scaffolding in place for a while until you've rerouted the river. And then ultimately you can take that stuff away because it flows on its right. own. So for example, mm -hmm. at ADP, this was sort of rerouting, let's call it the, the, the cultural diversity river with a few pieces of infrastructure put in place to help right. it. The idea isn't that it will still be there in 10 years, because hopefully that river is flowing nicely, getting the results they want, and they can reposition the need for incentives for other things that need rerouting, if that makes sense. It, it does. You're overcoming decades of infrastructure and policy and practice. So you needed to overcome it. So it had to happen. And again, just measurement, measurement, measurement. And then the beauty of measurement is because, you know, it's not like there's never been effort. There's a lot of effort that's going on right now. There's a lot of effort five years ago, but the result, results weren't there. So 
part of this is when you have such a microscope that you can put on a process and you say, okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Any results change? Any res- no, stop it. You know, because you can't just keep piling on. No. You got to know that the actions you're taking are, having, are moving the needle. And if they're not, change them out quickly because you know, you, then you just overwhelm the place with too much process, too much training, et cetera. So let's go to our third question, because I think this one actually takes a different lens on everything, which is, in the past, DE&I used to be thought of as something that had to do with compliance, and there were immediate reactions to that. How does an organization, and how do you suggest an organization overcome those kind of thoughts around this being just something we have to do because it's compliance? How do, we, how do we change that theory to being, you know, in practice, something different? Yeah, I, I, it's a really big question. And, you know, to me, I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, which is you have to mean something for everyone. And I think that's really important to, to respond to that, because I think a lot of people, diversity, oh, that's not for me, that's right. meant for this group of people right. and I, but I've got to do my hour a year in my diversity training. And, and I, I felt very much, like you said, compliance, administrative, not adding value and really just a waste of productivity right. and probably a drain on the energy, the positive energy that you want to actually put towards the effort. So I, I think you need to really engage, let's say if it was ADP, 60,000 people, what do they want to see from inclusion? Like everybody. And then start really working on those things so that, again, like I said, the, the, the 40 plus year old white male right. can see himself in the diversity and inclusion strategy as opposed to, this is not for right. me. This right. is targeted towards women. This right. is targeted towards, you know, other racial groups, whatever it might be. And I think you, you need to do that and really work on that and constantly be open to, you know, everyone's got different views on it. So a lot of it is really around engagement and conversation as well to move it along. But to me, that's the biggest step is make what you're doing resonate and be meaningful to really everybody in your organization. I think one of the examples that uh, that former company you keep bringing up did very well was having BRGs. Because what BRGs did was it said, we're going to have a lot of groups of people to support. And there'll be supports of lots of different things, whether you're a veteran, whether you're an LGBTQ ally, whether you're African-American, whether you're whatever you want to identify with, we'll give you support. And that enabled people to feel like they were in a safe space and not be judged and help other people. So yeah. there was mentoring opportunities or answering questions or feeling like they belonged, which is what you're trying to get to, right? Dermot, it's, it's, it's yeah. giving people yeah. who might not necessarily put themselves in a box to actually feel like they belong to something so that they feel a part of the organization and that they're being heard specifically with whatever their problems are and to be able to reach out to other people and get people across an organization that they may never have met before, right? I totally agree. And that word, and I've, I've loved it, you know, used it a lot in prior companies, but belonging, you know, is the ultimate sort of descriptor of inclusion. Right. And it may have nothing to do with how we've sort of 
boxed in the sense of diversity. It could be someone you just said, I, I just feel right. like I belong right. here, right? That could, you know, and, and they may not even be able to describe, you know, why. So yes, and it's interesting. So they started out as associate resource groups. Right. Rita Mitchens did a great yeah. job of rebranding and relaunching. She was the chief diversity officer to relaunch those. And I remember going to lots of them. By the way, there's all different facets now. It's pretty yeah. exciting to see, you know, the, 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 really the, the umbrella of areas of focus. But I remember going to one of the, the, the women leadership programs and speaking at my first year. And I was like, what's wrong with this picture? And they were all looking around and, I'm like, where are all the men? <laughs> so same thing, the same thing. If I, you know, you know, if I, if I went to the Hispanic group, like, you know, where, where are all the white people? So the reason I yep. say that is because it's good to have a sense of belonging and coming together. Right. But the whole point is inclusion is actually to, let's call it penetrate right. the organization, right. uh, have more opportunities, be able to, you know, contribute more, whatever right. it is. And, and for example, in the women's leadership team, I said, look, we should use this as a forum when you meet once a year work with HR, we'll bring in the best male leaders who nurture women's careers, right? So that you can get to know them, they can get to know you. And now they'll, you know, maybe you'll work for them, you know, at some point. And then also, I call it the barbell approach. Also on the other end, the the, the men who are not, who have no women on their team, yep. let's not say, let's not blame them and say, hey, <laughs> they've got a, you know, they've got some sort of, right. you know, faulty mechanism. Right. Let's say maybe they just haven't met great women talent. Right. So now bring them into your forum, exactly. let them meet you. And now they get access to talent that they have hard, you know, haven't been able to place on their team. So these were all the actions and steps that over time, you know, breaks down a lot of barriers, brings the resources to bear, as you said, and, and ultimately helps with the sense of belonging. Way, ways to mix and embrace at the same Absolutely. time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and David, and you know, you know, we've been around the world, you know, you've been around the world as, as well. There is nothing like learning from different people to, at the end of the day, realize how similar we are. It's kind of this, you know, it, it feels like an oxymoron, but it's, it's when you live just in, you know, if you live in your little cocoon, little Italy, yeah. you know, for example, right. or you know, you're part of Queens and it's all the Irish are there, you know, you don't mingle, you don't, you know, no. this is what you right. know. And you think that the person on the other side of the street or the, you know, so different from you, you know, how, how could they, right. how could I have anything in common? But, you know, living in Japan, becoming very close friends with local yep. Japanese or, you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kongers, yep. you realize, oh my God, just give it a chance. Yeah. Maybe a little different because, you know, you don't know where to start, but once you meet different people, you, it just constantly brings me back to, wow, you know what? They're not different. It's just, we have, right. we have this predisposition that they're different. They're just humans, you know, trying to, trying to make their way through life and families the same way we yep. are. Everybody's got hopes and dreams and loves yeah. and, you know, exactly. getting it down to that basic yeah. level. But, exactly. But, it, but we miss it a lot, you know? We do. We miss the human connection. When I went over to London, Dermot, you may remember this, to work in the Office of Development in London for Morgan Stanley. I was the young yank who came over to do compensation. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. 
I literally had to re relearn compensation on a global basis, learn about the Dirigenti in Italy and learn about how compensation was done, in, as you know, in Tokyo and how conversations yeah. around performance and compensation happen in Tokyo. And so yeah. you think you know everything. And I thought I did. And I was a real smart aleck about it. But when I met Tamsin, she set me straight and Amanda Sams, they set me straight. They set me on the right path of forget what you think you know. Let's relearn it together. We'll teach you. You'll teach us. Yeah. And culturally, I understood that just being a, you know, this, this young kid who thought he understood compensation didn't mean anything because I had to relearn not only the, the processes and learning compensation basically from scratch again, I had to learn about culturally how not to be a bull in a China shop. And so yeah, totally well, opened my eyes. I get it. Yeah. I get it. And and that's the, that's the trick, you know? So like I said about it, we're all sort of biased because yep. we come by definition in our limited world. You went over there, this, you were in your world and your space, you were the expert. Yep. And now you crossed over international waters and you're taking that sense of expertise, which <laughs> some of it applied, but probably most of it, you still had to learn. Oh, yeah. And then think about how you grew, exactly. how you grew by being open. So that's key to being open and listening. So I, you know, I always tease myself. I'm a big talker. Like I love to chat, but I listen a lot. I listen to people. I listen to organizations. You always get mixed messages when you've got leaders around you. Maybe some of them are trying to tell you what you want to hear. Right. Get down into the troops, get down to the coal face where the people are dealing with things. Undercover Boss is a great <laughs> show. I love it for that reason right. that, you know, you got this policy up here, but by the time it, you know, gets, gets translated and hits the ground, it could be awful. So yeah. the greatest, the greatest thing that leaders can do is be just down there with the people who are talking to clients, who are getting the work done, you know, in the call centers, et cetera. You won't go wrong in your strategies if you listen to the people, as opposed to thinking you're the expert. I'm going to architect it from my podium of expertise. I, I, there's a lot of failed CHROs who get in job one, two, three years, and then they're out because they had a big attitude, not a big aptitude for how this stuff actually gets done. Totally agree. Dermot, this has been wonderful. So just to recap, we've talked about DE&I as a business strategy. We've talked about why a diverse team matters and why it's important. We've talked about what strategies can be employed to actually move the needle and make a big change and make a big impact on an organization. We've also talked about how to overcome the common misconception that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is just a compliance issue because that's the way it was positioned in the past. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we conclude today? No, other than to say, like, I, I really appreciate you, you know, doing what you guys do here, you know, for the HR community. And, you know, this topic is so important that we just have to keep challenging ourselves to make it bigger and wider. The more narrow we become in our focus, the more it doesn't mean something to too many you Absolutely. know people. So that is a challenge I, you know, I put out to everybody. You can double down in certain areas, but don't neglect anybody if you really want a true inclusion strategy. Well said. Thank you very much, Dermot. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Dwight. 
Thank you. Thanks for being with us today, Dermot. It's been enlightening for me. Appreciate that, Dwight. And thank you all for listening. Take care and stay safe. That was the HR Data Labs podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe. And if you know anyone that might like to hear it, please send it their way. Thank you for joining us this week and stay tuned for our next episode. Stay safe.